Hello everyone and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack Dilo Boblik, and my lovely, luscious, lugubrious wife, Hi, I'm Emily Dilo Boblik, watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture, and today's movie is Gentleman's Agreement, alternatively titled Newish at Being Jewish. What was the alternate title that your dad gave us? Hey, you're to... the one with the memory in the family. <laughs> Hold on. You're the one with the entire brain. I'm working with a quarter over here. <laughs> I know your dad gave us. Oh, yeah. He said Jewish like me. Jewish like me. <laughs> that was a. I think that was a, a good title, too. I think <laughs> both, both of these could have been hilarious alternate titles yep better than gentleman's agreement that yeah which is you know a title drop and the title name drop during the movie there's just one character that says it once and we've had a lot of title drops during the 40s yeah they like to do it like to wink at the camera it just again it has nothing to do really no. with the movie it says absolutely nothing about what this movie deals with only in the loosest possible sense yeah. All right, let's see the poster. Let's see the poster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's got good colors. Yeah, but once again, it's a poster that tells us absolutely nothing about the movie. It's as uh, yeah, boring and stodgy as the movie is. Yeah. And at least you get to see all the entire actors' bodies instead of just their heads, except for poor Dave. Right. He's just shoulders and a head. But it's just a, a white background, blue letters with the names of the actors. There's a sort of a, a red and yellow banner to say. The red background, yellow colors uh, to uh, indicate the title. And then the main, the female and male protagonists sort of to the left side. He's sitting on the chair and in she's a just white void yeah yeah the blank background makes it pop more yeah oh very ironic that a movie about anti-semitism the one jewish character has the least amount of space on the poster yeah so so much about a movie that's about anti-semitism it's just there's so much that's wrong also about it not, about its depiction not the only way this movie lacks some self-awareness <laughs> yeah as we'll get into <laughs> yeah all right information about the movie mm -hmm. it is based on a novel of the same title that was published in 1947 and written by laura z hobson it was a best-selling novel in 1947 and it deals with a journalist who is hired to write an expose on anti-Semitism in New York and in prominent communities in Connecticut. Still haven't gotten away from the trend of movies in this time period being adaptations of novels. Yeah. It is directed by Elia Kazan. It was produced by Daryl F. Zanuck and distributed by the uh, 20th Century Fox. Uh, the release date was November 11th, 1947, and the premiere took place in New York. Uh, the running time is 118 minutes. The budget at the time was close to $2 million, and it made uh, $7.8 million at the box office. 
So overall, it was quite a, a success. Yep. At least at the time. <laughs> they loved it. For characters and actors, we have Gregory Peck, who plays Philip. I'm not sure how to pronounce this one because it read, if I read it the way it's written to me, it's Schuler, but they pronounce it Skyler. They say Skyler in the movie, yeah. yeah. And that's his mother's name. Right. Philip Skyler Green. He's the journalist. His son, Tommy Green, is played by Dean Stockwell. His mother, who lives with them, is played by Anne Revere. I swear I have seen her somewhere else, but she I... She looks a lot like the Wicked Witch from Wizard of Oz. Oh, that's true. I was trying to look at her filmography, but there is none of the titles rang a bell to me, so I have no idea where else I could have seen her. She does not have a kind face. <laughs> no. She looks very tired. She has some like very dark circles under her eyes. She doesn't look like she had a, a good complexion, that, that she was a very healthy, but... Mm. And they have a very sarcastic, uh, no-nonsense, tough-love kind of relationship. Yeah. She fits the character well. Yeah. We have Albert Decker, who plays John Menifee. He's the editor who hires Green. We don't ever hear his name in the actual movie, do we? I just Mr. Menifee. Mr. Menifee. Yeah. They do say it. I just refer to him as the boss. <laughs> yeah. We hear Mr. Menifee a couple times. We never hear his first name, hmm. I don't believe. Um, we have Dorothy McGuire, who plays Kathy Lacey. She is John Menifee's niece, and she is uh, Green's love interest in the movie. Is she an actress we've had before, or am I just losing my mind? I No, we've never had her before. She just looks very similar to a couple of actresses we've had before. All right, losing my mind. <laughs> Jane Havoc plays Elaine Wales. She's a Green's secretary or a note-taker. Uh, John Garfield plays Dave Goldman. He's a soldier, and he, I believe we were meant to understand that he was Green's like, childhood friends. They've known each other for a long time. We yeah. don't know exactly how long. I do think he says that they grew up together at some point. Yeah. Spends his entire time in his military uniform. Yes. And at the entire movie. I also believe that he is the only actor in this movie who plays a jewish person and who is who was also jewish in real life hmm. uh, we have celeste holm who plays anne detry she's one of green's co-workers at the magazine and we have an honorable mention for sam jaffe who plays professor fred liberman who plays fake einstein <laughs> fake einstein not yeah. albert <laughs> All right, some fun facts. Not all of them are fun either for this movie. But they are all facts. But they're all facts. Zanuck uh, got interested in adapting the novel after he couldn't get a membership in the Los Angeles County, in the Los Angeles Country Club. Apparently, people used to think that he was Jewish because of his last name, and he experienced some anti-Semitism because of that. I also read that a few Jewish film executives, including uh, Samuel Goldwyn, wanted him, warned him about making the movie because they knew that it was it would cause trouble. Exactly the argument that some of the characters in the movie bring up. Yeah, you're just stirring up trouble. Yeah, and there was also concern that was raised about the fact that 
Dorothy McGuire's character is a divorced woman. So there were a couple things. A, because the, the movie deals with anti-Semitism. B, because of, of her character. They were uh, afraid that it wouldn't pass the... It wouldn't pass the Hollywood standards that it would be stopped after post-production and that it would never be released because uh, some of the elements in the movie just didn't fit with the production code. Yeah, the Hayes Code. So anti-Semitism is wrong, but we can be bigoted against divorced women. <laughs> There's a hierarchy to these things. A few actors, including Cary Grant, turned down the role of Philip Green. Even Peck was warned that the role had the potential to put his career in danger, but he took the role anyway. And John Garfield, who was Jewish himself, was put on a Hollywood blacklist uh, for over a year after that, after the movie because of his role. That's Dave. That's Dave. Wow. Yeah. Just so, talking about a movie being proven. So the right. only person who gets in trouble for it is the actual Jewish person. Yeah, I also read something, I didn't, it didn't give any details, but I read that there was a, a commission or a committee, uh, something, the anti-un-American production something something. And Some they, combination of patriotic sounding buzzwords. Yeah, and that they called some of the actors to testify in front of a committee. <laughs> like, I don't know, I, I couldn't find really any Committee of who? Details. Their own committee? Their own committee, I guess. Come, apparently making a movie about anti-Semitism is un-American. Come talk in front of our uh, clubhouse we made up. <laughs> where we have a rubber hammer and we'll pretend that we can make rules. Yeah. There was another movie released in the same year that also dealt with anti-Semitism. It's entitled Crossfire. But apparently Crossfire was supposed to be an anti-homosexuality story at Whoops. first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the movie was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress in 2017. And it was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Actor for Gregory Peck, Best Actress for Dorothy McGuire, Best Supporting Actress for both Celeste Holm and Anne Revere, Best Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. And it won three awards for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actress for Celeste Holm. The losers bracket for that year includes the bishop's wife, Barfaruni, Crossfire, the mm. other anti-Semitism movie. Yep. Great Expectations, which I would assume is based on the novel, and uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. If I'm remembering correctly, that's the one about proving Santa Claus is real. In Miracle court? on Thirty Fourth Street, I think. I've we, never heard of it. We've already established that I am losing my mind. So. <laughs> and I think that's the one where they have a, a legal case of, over Santa's identity and they prove that he's real in the end by uh, showing all the letters that are addressed to him every year. That proves he's real. <laughs> oh, there's just so many loopholes in this. He can't be fake if people are writing to him <laughs> and they dump a sack full of letters on the judge's, uh, whatever the hell you call it, where the judge sits. All right. 
We'll have to and look this one up. The judge says, I need to fucking get home to my family. It's Christmas, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Why did they need to prove Santa's identity never in seen, the first place? I've never seen the whole movie, so I don't know. All right, we'll have to look this up and maybe uh, at some point add a, a fact check to this <laughs> <laughs> to this podcast. There's some little kid involved and, you know, trying not to burst the kid's bubble or something. I've only seen bits and pieces. Yeah. And here's the last piece of fun fact, not necessarily completely related to this movie, but the Wikipedia page for Gentleman's Agreement suggested two similar movies. One is entitled Black Like Me. Oh, no. From 1964, which uh, follows another journalist who disguises himself as black uh, in the Deep South. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, not great. Especially since the title that your dad suggested was Jewish Like Me. When I saw Black Like Me, I was like, oh, gosh. And then the other movie that was suggested was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, 1967, which features one of the very few interracial couples in film history at the time. Oofa doofa. A 23-year-old white woman comes back from her holiday in summer vacation, I believe, in Hawaii, and she has been engaged for 10 days to a 37-year-old black man, and she's bringing him to meet her family. So we get another lecture about how stupid people are. Well, apparently... I. Is that the Again, whole focus I've, of the plot of the movie? I've never seen the movie. I didn't read uh, the whole plot of it, but it's labeled as a romantic comedy. So I'm assuming that maybe this one is... Sounds like a barrel full um, of laughs. Better than maybe we expect. I don't know. I don't know. All right. And we turn to you. Ready for the plot? Yes. Here we go. Third opening over plain beige background. What is happening? This one I, I did I did see. You've seen the sure. last two, right? I said I saw the last the one before that, but this one was even clearer. This is the third time. Are we in limbo? What's going on here? Just plain nothing. Like they're pointing the camera at carpet. <laughs> the most bland, boring carpet you could ever imagine for the opening of these last three movies. Yep. Then an aerial shot of New York, and then we're at street level with a father and son as they walk through the city. This is Phil and Tommy. Mm-hmm. Phil stops to sit on a bench and asks Tommy if he likes the city. Tommy does, and asks why they lived in California before. Phil tells him it was because he was born there and married there, so he just kept on living there. Tommy then asks if his mother ever came to New York with Phil, and Phil says she didn't, and asks Tommy if he still thinks about her. Sometimes, but not all the time, replies Tommy, and follows up with, How old was I when she died? Four years old, says Phil. Ever gonna get remarried? asks Tommy. Maybe. Want me to? says Phil. Tommy says he's fine with how things are right now. It's just that Grandma is complaining that it's getting harder to have Phil around the house. (laughs) Phil chuckles, and the two continue their walk. They enter the lobby of a business building and meet Phil's mother who complains about having to wait and Phil hands off Tommy so he can go alone to an appointment at a magazine headquartered in the building. A lot of just immediate plot dumping. Yeah. Like, we're new to this city and... And your mom's dead. Do you ever think about your dead mother? <laughs> yeah. Are you going to get remarried? 
it's a, a clunky introduction to these characters where they're just here's are all here are all the issues and it's like a, trying to speed run getting you up to date on their lives and where they are and so what's going to change and happen over the movie yeah and also sometimes those introductions especially the questions that are asked by kids make kids feel a little bit unreal not but I don't know, it's just the way that the characters play in that in that scene because we know you know kids ask questions just uh, that are completely valid like are you ever gonna get remarried and what how old was I when this happened and, like we know that Tommy does not feel like a, an actual child in this movie he's a an, an adult who's forgotten what it was to be a child's interpretation of a child yeah how old do you think he is really supposed to be he looks like he could be anywhere between eight and eleven uh, he's bigger than that i i put him in the like 10 11 12 range yeah he's a very leave it to beaver like gosh golly gee willikers type kid i have no idea what this string of words means I'll tell you later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he hands Tommy off to his mom and then goes off to his interview. He makes it to his appointment uh, with the boss and is invited to dinner at the boss's place later, which he tries unsuccessfully to refuse and then is told to get comfortable in his chair because the boss is going to talk to him for an hour, maybe two. Fade to black. And we get a whole thing about him going up to the, the magazine office, sitting down, getting mm. the magazine, Telling the the secretary that he has an appointment, being led to his appointment, a lot of unnecessary fluff that I'm skipping over. And then the boss's refusal to take no for an answer. Uh, Would you like to come to dinner tonight? Uh, And Phil tries to decline. He goes, "Uh, maybe next time. And the boss says, there won't be a next time. You're (laughs) you're coming tonight. You're either coming tonight or you will never. And you're going to talk to him for an hour, maybe two. And then we fade to black. Uh, Then we see Phil arriving at the boss's place and being introduced to the boss's wife and niece, Kathy, and also her ex-husband is there. Which, are we aware that that it's her ex-husband at that point? Because we know later. The boss immediately says it. This is because Kathy introduces herself using her ex-husband's last name. Uh And then the boss says, well, let's get this all clear right now to avoid confusion. This is my niece and this is her ex-husband. Oh, I did not catch that. The boss is this man who is always operating at like 60 miles an hour. So he just is like, this is what's going on. And here's this and this and this. And I got to go do this and buy. And there's no sense of like decorum or anything. He Mm. just, he doesn't care about uh, niceties or anything like that. He just wants everyone on the same page. And uh, we'll just tell everyone what's going on very matter-of-factly. So, yes, he's like, this is my niece. This is her ex-husband. She still uses his last name. It's confusing. Bye. (laughs) Phil sits down and chats with Kathy, who tells him uh, she hasn't read everything he's written, but what she has has been great. And she makes the OK symbol with her hand. Yeah. And she uh, gets rid of her ex-husband by telling him to go get her a drink or something. Yeah. And we never see him again. (laughs) Uh, she asks Phil what he's writing now, and before he can reply, the boss chimes in and says he's asked Phil to do a piece on anti-Semitism. They're going to break it wide open, he says. Mm-hmm. Kathy says that she should be credited in the piece because she's the one who brought up uh, anti-Semitism as a topic last Christmas. Uh, the boss chuckles and agrees, then leaves the two alone, and Phil tells Kathy he's surprised she's the one who suggested the article. Why, replies Kathy coolly. 
Phil fumbles with an explanation for a few seconds before Kathy, uh, not unkindly, cuts in and tells him he judges people too quickly. Or women, anyway. She saw him do it when he sat down, cross-filed and indexed her. Well-bred, self-confident, artificial, typical New York. Phil says he didn't have time for that much. Sure you did, says Kathy. I even left out a few things. It's only partly true, though, she says with a smile. Yeah, I like the, I like their first interaction here, but also everything that she's listing here, the self-confident, well-bred, artificial, I mean, they're kind of true. Yeah, she's self-aware, but being self-aware of your faults doesn't mean you don't have them, right? Yeah. Then she asks if he's moving to New York permanently. He is. Uh, but before he can ask anything about her, they're called to dinner. Then we're in Phil's apartment with Tommy and his mother as they eat breakfast together. Phil's mom asks what his assignment is and then says Phil doesn't sound very enthusiastic about it when he tells her. Uh, before he can explain why he's not enthusiastic, Tommy asks what anti-Semitism is, and Phil says it means people disliking someone because they're Jewish. Tommy has a follow-up question. Hmm. What exactly is a Jew? He says as he pours his grape nuts into his bowl. <laughs> yeah, question for people who are alive in the 40s. What the hell are grape nuts? <laughs> That's what they were eating for breakfast. I was wondering if it was maybe like an old name for raisins. Yeah, I could see it, that. It looks like he's having oatmeal. Yeah. So I could see him pouring raisins in his oatmeal. They've got cornflakes and they've got grape nuts. Yep. Phil explains further that it's a religion, like being a Catholic or a Protestant. Tommy has more questions, but is going to be late for school, so Phil is saved for more difficult explanations. <laughs> he, yeah. He doesn't exactly hem and haw and not how, how to say this, but he, he stumbles a few times and has to, to think about how he's going to simplify it for yeah. Tommy and explain uh, the arbitrary reasons for why people hate each other, when you can just say that people always come up with arbitrary reasons to hate each other. <laughs> But, you know, sometimes knowing kids, like, he knows, he also probably knows that if he doesn't choose his words carefully, there's probably going to be even more follow-up questions. Yep, trying to put this whole thing to bed. After Tommy leaves, Phil's mother asks if Phil is really that disappointed with his assignment, and Phil says he just doesn't know what he can say about it that hasn't been said already. His mother says maybe it hasn't been said the right way yet, and wouldn't it be nice to not have to explain it to children anymore? Yeah. Then we see Phil in the boss's office again, telling him he'll take the assignment, and the boss telling him he's surprised because he could tell when he pitched uh, the idea to Phil, uh, he wasn't very happy about it. Mm. He doesn't have a good poker face. We don't really know also what kind of articles he's he's writing at this point. Like we know a little bit later when he he talks with uh, his mom. Yeah, but... we don't. We just know he's. Uh, a writer we don't know if he's a novelist or if he's worked with magazines before yeah. or what kind of writing he's like if he's a journalist we don't it's it's vague yeah. a lot of stuff in this movie is vague like we don't ever learn what his wife died of we don't ever really learn why kathy got divorced from her husband yeah you don't this movie gives you details but it never really fills them in yeah uh, what changed his mind the boss wants to know Phil said having to explain it to his son changed his mind. Uh, he'll be needing some facts and figures from the research department so he can get started. 
This annoys the boss, who tells Phil he has 18 hacks writing for his magazine that could do this thing with facts and figures. Uh, what he wants from Phil is to go right to the source. Use your head. Find some angle, some dramatic device to humanize it so it gets read. So you just want the moon, replies Phil sarcastically. With parsley, replies the boss. <laughs> he Yeah, he gets surprisingly upset about this. Like, this isn't what I called you here for. Facts and figures, how fucking dare you? Yeah, which is also never really explained. Well, it just it's it would make it too dry, and that's an angle they've already tried before, and he wants something different. I guess, but I mean, but his, just come out with it and say exactly what you're expecting from this piece. Um, well, just keeping in in theme with the uh, the vagueness of this movie. Yes, he it, what he wants amounts to make it better and more interesting. <laughs> Make it something that will sell. Do it like we've done it before, but better. Phil says he'll knock it around and gets up to leave. As he walks to the door, the boss asks if he wants Kathy's phone number so they can work together on the piece. And Phil says he already has it because they're having dinner together. He always goes right to the source. Mm -hmm. And by source, I mean your niece's vagoo. <laughs> at the dinner, he and Kathy sit at a small table while other couples dance. That is... That's the big thing in this era we're finding out from all these movies we watch is uh, uh, dinner and dance places. Yeah. Uh, and Kathy tells him he's a very good listener because his face takes sides. I Honestly, I wish that more places uh, nowadays had music and that people could dance in the in restaurants. Like nowadays... It, it I think feels... the only place you could find it nowadays would be in a retirement home <laughs> <laughs> for doing this kind of thing. <laughs> No, but that's an old-timey thing that I, I think was nice for people when, you know, when you go out on dates, when you, instead of being crammed in, like, a, a restaurant room and being so close to other people's tables that you can hear their conversations or sometimes their arguments and all that, like, I feel like it would be nice to have some space between people and, and be able to uh, dance and have your, kind of, your own space. Yeah, times have changed. It was a... Uh... A middle class thing to do in, in the middle classes, uh, either disappearing or not as wealthy as it used to be. So, yeah, uh, you could still go to clubs <laughs> and get high and grind against other people. Yeah, well, that's not what I want to do. That's the the modern version of it. Oh, how far our society has declined! I fear for this country. <laughs> they flirt and make googly eyes at each other some more, and Phil asks if Kathy is engaged or in love with anyone. She isn't. Is he? No. Would she like to dance? She would. Yeah. This is their first date, and he's asking if they're engaged. Move fast in the 40s. Good grief. Yeah, well, he's got to know, you know, if he can make a move or not. He's got to know if they can get married so they can have sex. <laughs> <laughs> got to know if he can buy this airplane so he can get free peanuts. I, was like, I wonder if that's that derailing a little bit, but... I wonder if that's really a concern since they've both been married before. Like if they if they hadn't been married before, I would understand. But uh, the concern about hey, what can we get married so we, so we can have sex? But here they've both been married, so Kathy might go for it, but Phil Phil is a very he's very proper, very proper and honorable and 
which also translates to boring and uninteresting. But yes, he's Phil is much too much too much of a Boy Scout mm. to to uh, circumvent the proper uh, procedure. Like mm. have to have all the the proper uh, forms and uh, files uh, notarized before you can uh, get those pants off. They get up to dance, and we fade to Phil sitting at his typewriter and smoking. His mother comes to tell him that Kathy is on the phone, and after a very brief chat, he confesses to his mother that he's made no progress on the article so far. They talk for, like, two minutes. And then, mm. yeah, just, I don't know, communication was different in those days because they didn't have texting and email and all the stuff we have nowadays. Just the little interesting but also bizarre to see just a, a quick calling someone to have like a, a two-minute chat with them and asking well, well how many uh, more times can i call you can i bug you during the day and he tells her like six or so then he tells his mom he hasn't gotten anywhere on the article so far every angle he's tried blows up in his face after an hour or so uh, when you get the right one there's kind of a click inside of you but it hasn't happened yet and he doesn't think it's going to He's bored with the whole thing, bored with himself, as a matter of fact. Maybe he's losing his grip. Most writers do at some point. Maybe it's his turn. Better not, says his mother. You couldn't make a nickel at anything else. He wishes his Jewish friend Dave were there to talk to about it, but Dave is stuck overseas. He's been ignoring feelings in his attempts so far, uh, but that might be the new approach he needs. Could he do it? Could he put himself in Dave's mind and feel what he feels? He and Dave are so alike. Whatever Dave feels would be what Phil would feel if he were a Jew. Yeah, that's not how that works. The more he thinks about it, the more excited he gets until he decides to write Dave a letter that very second and runs to his typewriter with his mother at his heels. This, yeah, this movie is naive in, in a lot of ways. His uh, approach to this article being one of the most uh, egregious Although I was impressed with how open he is with his mom about his process and the struggling he's having in, in their relationship. Yeah, they seem to have a, a very close relationship. She's all, she's a widow. She lives with him and Tommy, and they seem very... All the three of them seem extremely close. So he goes to write the letter to Dave, but once he sits down in front of, the, uh, in front of his typewriter, the f fire cools. And he realizes that a letter isn't enough to pry open the secret heart of a person. His mother agrees, uh, but tells him to write something to Dave anyway. Fade to black, and then fade back in on a shot of an envelope addressed to Dave. The camera pans over to Phil, asleep on his bed, who is suddenly awoken by a noise from down the hall. And he gets up to investigate and finds his mother uh, having some kind of heart trouble. Another uh, vague plot element of this movie, she has some sort of medical ailment, but we I don't think we ever get a specific name for it. Yeah. She has terminal bonitis. <laughs> yeah, he just comes into the room and she's just sitting up on her bed, like gasping for breath, and he gets her water and tells her he's going to call the doctor. And Yeah, I think that was just a, an excuse to at some point have a doctor in the in the movie because it's... A stereo it's a stereotype that a lot of doctors are Jewish and so I guess it was you know a point in the in the plot to have a doctor who was not Jewish in the in the house to then have a conversation about 
potentially going to see a Jewish doctor. You're probably right, because as we'll see as we go on, uh, most things in this movie are just setups for gotcha moments on on (laughs) anti-Semitism. He holds her hand and gives her some water and says he'll call the doctor, which she strongly protests. Uh, The next morning, Phil is making breakfast, and Tommy inquires, Is she gonna die, Pop? (laughs) Is she? We're all going to die someday, says Phil. Um, He knows it was scary. He was scared, too. But if Grandma takes care of herself, she'll be around long enough to see Tommy get married. Then the doorbell buzzes. Phil tells Tommy he'll have to make his own breakfast so he can go talk to the doctor. And then we get a short scene of Tommy breaking an egg. Quizzically looking at an egg and then breaking it with a spatula. There's a weird little continuity thing here because we hear the the doorbell buzz for the doctor, but the Mm -hmm. doctor does not come in the front door. He was in the bedroom. Yeah, he was already in the apartment. Yeah, so where's the doorbell? (laughs) I have no idea. Yeah. Weird. Uh, So Phil goes to talk to the doctor and the doctor, while lighting a cigarette... (laughs) He's giving his diagnosis while he's smoking a cigarette. Uh, Tells Phil that it wasn't uh, as bad as it seemed, and she'll be fine in a day or two after some rest, and he'll check back in over the coming week to make sure. House calls from doctor and doctor saying, I'll check back in over the following week. This will never, ever happen again. No. I mean, I've known, you know, doctors to make house calls in in France. Like, it's very common for, um, like, family doctors to have... A couple of hours at the beginning of their day, like from 8 to 10, when they just go, uh, when they make uh, house calls. And and then after that, they'll, they're they in their practice. But the I'll come back in, that I've never seen. Oh, you could probably get it in America if you're obscenely rich. Sure. But not just old lady living in an apartment like mm. this. No. Uh, Phil then goes into his mother's bedroom to talk with her and tells her how scared he was and how he wanted to ask her if she'd be okay, but some questions just can't be answered, like the question he's facing with this assignment. It's puzzled him like no other assignment he's had. With the other things he's written about, he wouldn't depend on accounts from other people. He'd go and do the thing himself. When he did a story on Route 66, he drove it himself. And when he did a story on miners, he went down and worked in the mines himself. He didn't try to dig into a coal miner's heart. He was a miner. Silence. And then, that's it. I've got it. Eureka, says Phil. I'll pretend to be a Jew. (laughs) Yeah, yikes. I just, I... I felt no. I this was wrong. Like you don't pretend to be something you're not, and you don't, especially you don't pretend. I don't know how yeah, to it's explain bad. it. It's, it's just, a it's a bad flawed premise, and this movie has no self awareness about how bad and flawed and naive it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no one knows him around here. He can just say it. And he even, like, checks himself out in the mirror and is like, i close enough. No one will know the difference. I've even got a title. I was Jewish for six months. That won't piss anyone off. Yeah, uh, that's the first thing that came to my mind is, like, you're going to, A, 
piss a lot of people off by when you're pretending to be Jewish because it will make people uncomfortable probably at that time. Like, not that it should make anybody uncomfortable. There's no reason for that. But we know that it's going to happen. And then B, you're going to make probably a lot of enemies also afterwards when the article comes out because people will just know that you were a liar and there's a reason to lie here it's to get another a different angle on the article but still it's a social experiment Mm. if you tried if you tried to pull this shit nowadays you would get yourself and your entire department fired yes you'll get yourself canceled for life uh that's it ma i finally got it this time you must says his mother it always works when you get this excited about something, and she agrees to play along. Yeah. there, There's no point in this movie. The only person who has reservations about this whole thing is Kathy, and she's framed as a villain for it later on. So yeah, everyone is gung-ho and uh, completely into this plan. Nothing wrong with it. <laughs> Perfect. A+. Plus. Can't beat 100%. Next scene is Kathy in Phil's apartment, uh, eager to hear what this new angle on the story is. Uh, before Phil can spill the beans, he pours Kathy some wine, and when he leans over her to hand her the glass, he pauses for a moment to look in her eyes, and then leans down the rest of the way for a passionate kiss. They separate, and then they go in for round two. Uh, Kathy breaks away and stands up, and then comes back together for round three. Uh, they make out for a while. Yeah. I was surprised as they have the uh, the guidelines in these times for how long a kiss can last. And it feels mm-hmm. like they're trying to just skate around it by, uh, oh, that was the first kiss and they break apart. And this is the second kiss. Yes. So they can keep going. Uh, Kathy then breaks off again and tells Phil to stay on his side of the room while she collapses onto a, a side couch in a daze. She just falls back uh, uh, onto these pillows, uh, lightheaded and dizzy. Yeah. He's a very handsome man, so... Yep. Phil is pacing back and forth excitedly and tells Kathy that marriage can be such a good way to live. Like, (laughs) cool your jets, Jesus Christ. All these years, he's kept hoping, and Kathy breathlessly tells him that she's been uh, kept hoping too. Yeah. Uh, But once you've made a mistake, it makes you afraid. You're not afraid, though, says Phil, and Kathy smiles. Then she tells him she was playing the game all women play and trying out the name. Mrs. Green. How does she like it? inquires Phil. Just fine, she says with a smile. Phil asks if she's okay with Tommy and she says he doesn't bother her. It makes her feel like her marriage didn't fail and she's had a son this whole time. That was just that was a weird exchange that was a weird interaction i understand i was there until the you know when she was trying out the name saying oh mrs green mrs green yes but the i didn't understand that oh it makes me feel like i had a son this whole time i mean i get what they're going for but it's uh, awkward and clunky like a the whole rest of this movie i i'm not i don't like they're romance at all it's, it's too fast it's too awkward they're just, no i'm not into it uh, round four of smooching and then we're outside the boss's office looking in as phil explains like the camera is outside we're looking in through the window and we can just see them uh, very animatedly uh, moving around and like hopping up and waving their arms and mm. having a good time the pair move outside and the boss is gushing about how much he loves the plan and who will be in on it and who won't 
All the important people who run the magazine are having lunch together today, he tells Phil, so it would be an excellent opportunity to introduce him to everyone and reveal what he's working on. We jump right to the lunch from there and the boss uh, introducing Phil to the table. They sit down and the boss announces that Phil will be writing about anti-Semitism. Uh, the man sitting right next to the boss thinks that's a terrible idea. You can't write it out of existence. You'll only stir things up and make it worse. The boss responds that he won't be part of any conspiracy of silence. They're going to call a dirty spade a dirty spade. Phil then chimes in and says he agrees, and not just because he's Jewish himself, and says it loud enough for the entire table to hear. Yeah. Also, this man bringing up a problem is someone we've never seen before and never seen again. <laughs> uh, most people in this movie are just props to uh, voice opinions on anti-Semitism. Yeah, They're... just different situations where anti-Semitism is brought up and then seeing people's reactions to it. Yep, they're not actual characters. They're just uh, placeholders for opinions. Yeah. Uh, deafening silence after uh, Phil announces that he's a Jew and everyone just turns to their food and starts Yeah, eating. everybody just like brings their head down, looks, uh, they look at their plates and then nobody says anything. It immediately kills the conversation. Uh, cut to Phil entering his office and meeting his new secretary, Elaine Wales. They sit down and Phil tells her her first task is to send uh, applications to jobs, one with a regular last name and one with a Jewish last name, to see if the Jewish one gets rejected more. And this, this is a thing they've done in modern times, but instead of doing it with uh, Jewish last names, they've done it with uh, you know, African-American last names yeah. and stuff like that. Like, Interesting to see how long that trick has existed. Uh, Elaine tells him she already knows what's going to happen since she had to change her own last name just to get her current job at this very magazine. Phil is shocked and asks if the boss knows about that, and uh, Elaine tells him it's too small a thing for the boss to worry about. Hiring and firing is handled by Mr. Jacobs. She was wondering if Phil changed his name too after she heard he was Jewish. You heard I was Jewish? <laughs> says Phil, clearly surprised. When? Well, she says, after you finish lunch, word kind of got around. And then we're back in Phil's apartment, and uh, the doctor is leaving after a checkup, and Phil says that he got a recommendation for a specialist to take her to from someone at the magazine. Yeah, so it's already, when once he got, comes back from lunch, word has already gotten around. The experiment is already underway, because... Yep. If he hadn't said anything, then... It's a rumor that's spreading. Yeah, it's a rumor that's spreading. So. It, immediately, the yeah. The the warning call was put out like immediately because he went straight from the lunch to this meeting with the secretary and it's everyone already knows yeah. and he's surprised about it. The doctor he was recommended has a Jewish last name and the house doctor says the specialist is good. Uh, he doesn't string things out and overcharge like many other of the chosen people. After that, we get a scene of Phil changing his name on the mailbox in his apartment building to make it sound more Jewish and being told by the building's handyman that that's against the rules. And Phil growls at him not to change it and walks away. Yeah, he just he start... leaves green, but he write, also writes Greenberg on the, under it. Yeah, we just start getting this montage of everyone being an anti-Semite. Yeah. And although the handyman, he wasn't... It didn't feel like he was objecting to it because it was Jewish last name. His objection was, uh, this is against the rules, and if you want to change your name, you need to fill out a form, not just write it on there. Yeah. But then Phil gets mad as, him, as if he's being anti-Semitic as well. 
that one felt misplaced or they didn't make him enough of an anti-Semite. Yeah, they didn't push it far enough. Yeah. Then we see him with Kathy again as the two sit down on a spacious uh, balcony slash patio while Kathy implores him to finally tell her what his angle for the story is. They got too caught up in making out, I guess, last time for him to reveal anything. Mm. And they're on this balcony with it's nighttime now and you can see it's a backdrop. There's a lot of city backdrops in this movie, Mm -hmm. but it's a nice looking backdrop city at night. He tells her what the angle is, and she immediately says, uh, but you're not Jewish, right? <laughs> and that's where he, he started. I, at least to me, I was like, oh, oh, shit. This is not what his relationship is going to. This is not the relationship that he thought it was going to be. Well, as soon as he uh, started this Jewish angle, the, it's all about uh, catching people in their anti-Semitism. Yeah, so. they're showing their true face. Uh, She hastily adds that it wouldn't make a difference if he was. Uh, She just uh, was caught off guard is all and was confused. Uh, She's not as enthusiastic about it as Phil and the boss are because she thinks it'll mix everybody up and they won't know what he is. Phil gets up and lights a cigarette, obviously annoyed, and Kathy follows, holding onto his arm and apologizing. I thought that the choice of words here was, it's very subtle, but it was a good choice of word when she said they won't know what you are instead of who you are. Yep. Like, it, like Jewish is a thing or that you are. They won't know uh, what category to put you in. Yeah. How will they know how to mentally frame you? Apologizes and says she was just being too practical. It's the school teacher in her. I guess she, maybe at some point when they first meet, she talks about teaching classes or something. It never gets brought up again after this. No. Uh, Phil isn't convinced. And then we fade to them awkwardly eating dinner together. They both stare directly at the table and wither in silence until Phil says he he should get home to check on his mother. They're just, they're not even looking at each other. They're just staring at their food, like poking at it. Yeah, both of them are uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, deafening silence. And yeah, it's super awkward. And then Phil says, well, I just, I, I, I should go. It was a mighty fine dinner, though, he says weakly. Kathy walks him to the door, and he says he'll call her sometime tomorrow and leaves without a kiss. In the hallway outside, he waits for the elevator, but once it arrives, he turns around and goes back to Kathy's door. He knocks, and as soon as she answers, he sweeps inside for a hot apology-slash-makeout session. Between kisses, he says he doesn't know what happened. He felt insulted, as if he were really Jewish and couldn't let her off for it. She replies that she tried to say she was sorry, but she couldn't reach him. Then more smooching. Also, the elevator in her hallway, it doesn't have an elevator door. It just has a regular room door on it. Yeah. I've never seen that before Me in my neither. life. You, it, it just opens on a hinge. It just has a, a doorknob on it. You just <laughs> open this door and you're in an elevator. It just looks like, yeah, that you're going into a closet or something. Yep. Bizarre. And then they have their... They have their argument and then they have their uh, apology and yeah, just in between this movie, I don't, I don't know what came over me and mm-hmm. oh, I tried to reach you and I couldn't and I'm so sorry. I appreciate that they didn't drag this along, you know, that they it didn't drag for well, for too long. Like yeah, they're they uncomfortable and then he comes back. They uh, they kind of apo- both apologize and then it's fine. They kind of do though because the, they just keep having this argument and this apology throughout the entire movie. Right, this, but this the, is just. 
just the beginning of the cycle. The arguments, I agree. There's a repetition here, but the arguments never last too long. Uh, in the boss's office, Mr. Jacobs is making excuses for why there isn't a single secretary with a Jewish name working for the magazine. They have called in the man in charge of hiring and firing. Mm-hmm. The boss tells him to shut his claptrap and dictates, uh, dictates a help-wanted ad to be put in the paper immediately that specifically notes that the magazine does not care about the religion of its employees. Uh, and if Jacobs tries to fire Phil's secretary, it will have to be approved after going through the boss first. And he wouldn't do it, so don't even try. He can't yep. uh, fire her as retaliation because I believe she's in the room as well. I think so. During this whole thing. Uh, Jacobs leaves, and the boss says he's ashamed of himself for allowing this to happen right under his nose. No, it's somebody else. It must be uh, Menifee's secretary in the room, because then Elaine asks Green uh, about it afterwards. So she wasn't in the room. They still made it uh, clear that she was the one who brought this up. Right. Which they shouldn't have done. Uh, Then we're back in Phil's office as he dictates to his secretary. They finish, and the secretary asks if what she's heard about the new ad is really true. Are they really inviting any type to apply? Any type? What does that mean? Says Phil. Well, uh, just let them get one wrong one in here. It's no fun being the fall guy for uh And then she uses a slur that I'm not going to repeat. And uh, Phil then tells her that they need to get one thing straight. He doesn't like slurs no matter who says them. And then he lists a bunch of slurs himself. Yes. Including the N-bomb, which is the first time we've heard it. Yeah, that was, that took me by surprise. Yep. Uh, His secretary doubles down and says it's fine. She even calls herself a slur sometimes. It's just labeling a type. Uh, Surely he's just heckling her. He knows what she means. Sure, says Phil. You mean we don't look especially Jewish, so with us it can be kept nice and comfortable and quiet. He hates anti-Semitism no matter who it comes from, whether from a Gentile or another Jew. See you tomorrow, Miss Wales. Yeah. Yeah. This... When you're at the point where you're uh, lecturing a Jew on anti-Semitism, you are on some next-level bullshit. Yeah. It just... It felt... I don't know this entire movie it i understand why they made it and i understand that anti-semitism was it was widespread in new york at the time yes but and i understand that people didn't want you know another world war on american soil but it just it all just boils down to just be just be a good person just, yeah. You don't. If you have no reason to hate somebody else, then just be a fucking decent person. Yes, uh, this movie is very heavy-handed and has a very specific idea of uh, what the correct way to think is, mm-hmm. and is going to uh, wag its finger and monologue at any person who uh, steps even uh, one inch outside of those boundaries. Yeah, yeah this. lecturing a jewish person this oh man it just comes off as so slimy and virtue signaling and uh i i know more about anti-semitism than even you do person who's experienced it your entire life yeah but also at the same time she's also showing that she is racist 
So I don't know that he was specifically lecturing her about anti-Semitism, but he was lecturing her about racism at large. You don't think so? Well, he uses the N-word here, so the, uh, thought he was mentioning a bunch of slurs that don't necessarily all refers all refer to, to uh, Jewish people. Oh, so he was, to me, he was more trying to show her that just because she was uh, Jewish herself doesn't mean that she couldn't be that she couldn't be uh, a racist. He finishes up with he hates anti-Semitism, no matter where it comes from. So that was the, th- the thrust of the whole thing. That's his his pet issue. I guess. Uh, then we see Phil on his way out of the building, but as he passes by the office of a petite blonde woman named Anne, she calls out and invites him to have drinks with her. Phil agrees, and they head out arm in arm. We next see the two at a table, chatting happily. Another employee of the magazine joins them, and when he hears that Phil was in the military, he asks if he was in uh, public relations. Phil pointedly asks why he thought that, and why he couldn't have been a G.I., The man gets flustered and starts to say that some of his best friends are Jews, but Anne cuts him off and says that some of his friends are Methodists as well, but he never feels the need to bring that up. Mm -hmm. The man then leaves in a huff. Anne invites Phil to a party she's throwing tomorrow, and he says he'd love to come. Could he bring his girl with him? Uh, Anne blinks once uh, and says sure with her smile held firmly in place through sheer willpower. Yeah, she definitely has a crush. She has a crush and uh, didn't know he had a, a girl at that point. So you can see uh, her flinch and uh, have to uh, you just flash across her face that she has to hold her smile in place and, and not react yeah. to what she's actually feeling. And then, yeah, this dumb thing with the, the guy sitting down and arguing public relations. This As soon as, as Phil gets this angle for the story, this movie just turns into... A, a string of, uh, well, what do you mean, you people? What do you mean, you people? And it just, ugh. It just becomes exhausting and and, and nagging and lecturing and virtue signaling in, in the worst, most miserable, possible way. Every every person he encounters from that point on on just reveals themselves to be a secret anti-Semite. Yeah. How, how deep the rot has spread. Then we see Phil pulling up to Kathy's apartment building in a fancy suit and heading inside. Kathy steps out of the elevator to meet him and tells Phil how happy her family is about them being a couple. So happy they'll be throwing the two a big party next Saturday. Kathy asks if they can tell Phil's secret to her sister since his mom knows. And Phil says, yeah, sure, whatever. Let's go make out in the taxi. (laughs) At Anne's party, Kathy tells Phil Anne is very pretty. And she'll scratch her eyes out if she makes a move on him. Anne herself then walks over and asks the two if they'd like to meet fake Einstein, who is at the party. They would. So she leads them over to him and uh, pulls the other guests he was talking to away. So it's just Phil, Kathy, and not Albert. This, He's not called Einstein. He is very clearly meant to be an Einstein stand-in because yeah. he's... He's uh, got the mustache. He's got the uh, the hair like Einstein. The, cr- the crazy sticking up hair. He uh, has the same uh, facial structure and yeah. like uh, wrinkles and whatnot. Uh, Phil tells uh, fake Einstein that he's doing a series on anti-Semitism, to which uh, not Albert replies, for or against. Then he tells Phil he's starting his own crusade. He isn't religious, so he's not a Jew by religion. And science tells us there is no Jewish race, so his crusade is to go forward and say he's not a Jew. 
nowadays, most people are only vaguely religious, so he wonders why so many still claim to be Jewish. Would you like to know? Phil would. Uh, fake Einstein tells him it's because the world at large still makes it better to not be one, so it's a matter of pride. He guesses he'll just have to keep on being one then. And then he sends Phil away so he can be alone with Kathy. And he, very clear about it, he says, uh, I would like to conduct uh, another scientific experiment of being alone with your uh, fiancé. Mm -hmm. And he sends Phil's away. Yeah. I guess it's uh, okay to be uh, openly claimed to be a lecher when you're that famous. <laughs> Phil heads to the buffet table and is greeted by Anne. Uh, the two chat for a bit. And at the end, Anne implies Kathy's family are, you guessed it, anti-Semitic. Kathy being engaged to a Jew ought to really ruffle some feathers. Yeah. I didn't appreciate Dr. Professor Lieberman's speech here, too, because, you know, the fact that he says, well, I guess I'll just have to be, uh, I'll just have to, uh, to be proud of being a Jew. It was just, <sighs> yes, of course people are, are going to assert that they're, that they're uh, Jewish. They've gone through enough at this point. There was an entire genocide, not even that that ended, not even like two years before that. So, of course, you there's dangers that come with revealing that you're uh, that you're Jewish, but there's also there's got to be pride. Also, like you know, you shouldn't have to hide who you are just to avoid making people uncomfortable or anything like if that's part of your identity and that's part of who you are then absolutely you should be able to say that uh, that that's part of who you are oh, that's what he's trying to say this movie just can't make its points very well yeah it's very awkward and, and stumbling with all of them the way he's talking just to me the first time we watched the movie just made me feel like it was something that he would do out of rebellion instead of being proud of it, being proud of who he is. Uh, yeah, he's framing it as a, a divisive uh, political issue and he's uh, choosing his side. Yeah. Cut to Phil and Kathy returning from the party and Phil telling Kathy he changed his mind about her sister knowing his secret. Uh, too late, she says. She already told them. She phoned them during the party. That's what I do during parties. I phone my relatives to tell them uh, <laughs> uh, which one of my friends are secretly not Jewish. Uh, this leads to an argument because Phil thinks Kathy revealed the ploy so her family would know he wasn't really Jewish, which would be a problem for some of them. And Kathy wants to know why he thinks it's so important to cause problems over a pretend identity. If things are going to be so serious and solemn... She trails off, uh, putting a hand over her face because the the argument has been getting more intense and they're starting to like raise their voices at each other at this point. Yeah. Phil thinks he should go. I think some of his... I didn't like that interaction. I think some of the concern that he's raising here has to do with will they tell other people that he's just pretending because he doesn't want his cover for the article to be blown? But yeah, there's multiple concerns. Uh, You're right. One of them is he doesn't want his cover to be blown, but also uh, you shouldn't be covering for anti-Semites is another. Yeah. And you're not as invested in the cause as I am. Yeah. You it's are... just very, it's all very clunky. Yes. He is constantly calling uh, Kathy's virtue into question and it's just, fuck off, Phil. 
then we're back in Phil's apartment as Tommy rushes in to shake him awake because he has a phone call. The person on the phone is Dave, who just landed at LaGuardia. Phil tells him to grab a cab and come on over, and then hops in the shower to clean up before he arrives. While he's bathing, Tommy decides it's the perfect time to ask if they're really Jewish, because a kid at school told him he was. Phil pokes his head out from the shower curtain and explains he's just pretending like they do in the movies, uh, but he makes Tommy promise not to tell anyone. Sometime later, Phil and Dave sit in the apartment eating breakfast together, and Dave asks what's eating Phil. Why does he keep glancing at the phone? Phil says he had a fight with his girl and wants to talk to her, but only if she calls first. I'm not going to apologize. Yeah, the the pride of, she did something wrong, she's got to apologize first. Yeah, acting like uh, teenagers. Uh, then he tells him about his article and pretending to be Jewish. You fool, whispers Dave. You poor, poor fool. I was kind of expecting Dave to be the one to say this is stupid and offensive, but Dave is fully on board with it just like everyone else. Yeah. Phil tells him it's been working a little too well, and he's not enjoying having his nose rubbed in it. Uh, Dave replies that Phil hasn't had time to become insulated to it. It's new to him every time. Uh, you mean you get numb to it after a while? asks Phil. Well, no, but you're concentrating a lifetime into a few months, making this thing happen and going out to meet it every day. It makes it telescope and hurt more. Their conversation is interrupted by the phone ringing, and Phil is clearly disappointed when it's just a wrong number. Uh, Dave wanders over and says, Just call her already, you big dumb stupid idiot. Mm. Phil says he will, and then the next scene is Phil, Dave, and Anne in a restaurant together, laughing and having a good time. Until a man walks behind Dave's chair and bumps into him and says he doesn't like officers, because Dave is in his military uniform the entire time. Right. Uh, Dave tries to laugh it off, but the man is persistent and tells him he especially doesn't like officers when they're... And then he drops a slur. Dave shoots out of his seat and grabs the man's shirt, uh, but the man's friends quickly apologize and drag him away before things can escalate further. Uh, the waiter also apologizes, and Phil is told that he has a call. And then Dave sits down, and there's an awkward silence uh, where Anne doesn't really know what to say, and she, like, pats his hand. And uh, he just says, let's just keep eating and try and move on from it. Yeah. The call is from Kathy, who apologizes for their argument, and Phil apologizes too. All is well again. Then we're at the party where Phil is talking to all the rich old busybodies, the, the party being thrown for him and Kathy. It's just full and of... Their sort of engagement party. Yeah, just full of like upper crust, like old women in large hats kind of crowd. <laughs> uh, and Kathy is taking her sister aside to tell her he, she noticed that not everyone that they know is there at the party. Uh, a little careful screening, she says. Her sister tells her she's crazy. And uh, Kathy then saves Phil from the C Pearl Clutchers Club and takes him to see the summer home she built on the property. And we never see Kathy's sister again. Nope. Uh, it's a house she loves, but it's also one she started to build while she was still with her ex-husband and has come to symbolize a great many things for her. And we get just scenes of them just wandering around and like poking at the curtains and him. Uh, there's a, a nursery that never got used and like, oh, that could be a room for Tommy and, you know, mundane things of that nature. Uh, she knew she could never live here with someone she didn't really love. For a long time, she hated the place, but could never let it go. And now she knows why. 
She was just waiting for Phil. Aww. Uh, then we get a scene of Phil, Kathy, Ann, and Dave at Kathy's apartment chatting about the upcoming wedding and where they plan to go on their honeymoon. Uh, they mention they have reservations at a certain hotel, and Ann says they must be joking because that hotel is restricted, which means they don't allow Jewish people. Right. Uh, Cass Kathy says that they can just change their plans, but Phil thinks there must be something they could do. Dave assures him that trying to fight will do no good. You can't pin them down, he says. They'll never just say it outright or put it in writing. They'll worm out of it one way or another. Before Phil can reply, the phone rings, and Kathy picks it up and tells Phil that it's Tommy, and he sounds scared. Phil gets on the phone and tells Tommy to get the bottle of medicine out of the bathroom and give it to Grandma, and that he'll be there in five minutes. Sounds like a stroke, he tells everyone as he leaves. Oh, another... Anne is the only person in this room who doesn't know that Phil isn't a Jew. So yes. she's the only one that they have to keep up the, the facade for. Yes. And this, the the recurring thing of Phil being, well, there must be something we can do if we just, if we just call them out on it, something will change. And then. Yeah, he still has this like, kind of idealistic and very naive point of view. Yeah, and he's way more gung-ho about it than even Dave is, who is actually Jewish. Yeah. Dave is much more resigned and just like, you know, he's been dealing with this his entire life, so he knows that nothing changes if you uh, confront them about it. All you really do is uh, damage yourself more. Yeah. Uh, transition to Phil and Dave washing dishes together and Kathy entering the room saying that Phil's mom is recovering nicely and they'll have to postpone the wedding for a few weeks and that it, it, it isn't uh, a big deal. Uh, Dave says he won't be around for it if they have to postpone because he hasn't found a job or a place to stay and needs to get back to his wife. Uh, Phil then decides that now is the perfect time to confront the restricted hotel despite both Dave and Kathy telling him it's pointless. He knows, but he has to do it for his own sake. And then Dave says something about uh, everyone has to try at least once. And uh, he's tried once uh, himself. Yeah. They can't just get away with it, says Phil. Then we're at the hotel and everything is going fine until Phil pointedly asks the man at the front desk if the hotel is restricted. The man sputters a bit and then goes to get the manager. The manager comes out and won't answer the question either, saying things like, uh, we have a certain high-class clientele, and uh, uh, there's no open rooms in our hotel anyway. Do you or don't you take Jews, says Phil. I'm a busy man, says the manager, and walks away. He never... Uh, yeah, there's no confirmation, there's no yes, there's no actual like definite answer yeah he's got a big fake uh smile on his face and just dances around the the question and won't answer it directly and uh phil just keeps saying things like i've asked a simple question to want a sim simple answer and the guy just keeps you know answering with oh well we have a certain clientele and there's no open rooms anyway and uh, uh listen uh don't don't you raise your voice at me or else and then phil says or else what and then uh that's when you get the, I'm a busy man, and he rings the bell and walks away. Yeah, and while they're still having this conversation, somebody, like, I don't know what you call it, like, somebody comes behind Phil and takes his suitcase outside. <laughs> the uh, the bellhop. The bellhop, yeah, yeah. they just come and, uh, yeah, take it back outside, and everyone in the lobby is staring at Phil at this point. Yeah. And then, yeah, Phil walks out of the place with everyone staring at him as he leaves. 
Phil then returns to the apartment and gets in an argument with Kathy because she doesn't want to offer her cottage to Dave because uh, the cottage is in an anti-Semitic community, which Phil interprets as her not being willing to fight anti-Semitism enough. Right. Just as the argument begins to get uh, heated, Tommy comes in the room clearly upset. Phil gently asks him what happened, and uh, he says he tried to play with some other kids, and they called him a dirty Jew. Kathy assures him it's all a big mistake. He isn't any more Jewish than she is. Phil is not happy with this statement. Yeah, she's not happy with the fact that he that she was trying to reassure him uh, specifically about not that being Jewish. Yeah, that it's okay because he's not really a Jew. Yeah, which is the wrong. Yeah, that's the wrong answer here. Like wrong tactic to take. Bullying from any you know, kids for any reason is wrong. That's. What should have been her answer and just... Yeah, yeah. she says this and he goes, Kathy! And then he uh, just uh, takes Tommy and uh, walks him into the bathroom so they can talk about it alone. He takes Tommy into the bathroom and gives him a hug, uh, then asks if he's told the other kids he wasn't really Jewish. And Tommy says he didn't. Phil says that's good because if he did, it would be admitting that there's something wrong with being Jewish. Mm. Uh, They wouldn't fight, says Tommy. They just ran. Phil tells him that there are a lot of adults like that, too. He hugs Tommy again and says he needs to go talk to Kathy. And also, maybe don't tell Grandma about this until she's better, okay? (laughs) Don't need to give her another stroke. Yeah. Phil then goes back to Kathy to tell her once again how she doesn't really believe in the cause and how she tried to comfort Tommy by giving him a taste of superiority that millions of parents have poisoned their children's minds with. You can see that she's uh, pissed off as soon as he walks in the room because she's just like staring at the wall, like stone-faced. Yeah, and she has already put on her coat like she's uh, getting ready to leave. Yeah, there's a a clear tension in the room as, as soon as he walks in. Yeah. Uh, She says that uh, Phil thinks she's an anti-Semite. He's thought that for quite a while. She's known it. Uh, Don't even try and hide it anymore, she says. Phil says that he doesn't think that, but he's come to understand that that a great many people who say they despise anti-Semitism help it along every day and wonder why it spreads. Kathy tells him she's tired of being lectured on tolerance and she's not going to marry into uh, hot-headed shouting and nerves. She heads for the door, and Phil tries to apologize, but she won't hear it. Well, the thing also here, just like in this scene when they meet, and she says, oh, you judge people too quickly, and makes a a list of things that she clearly is, but she's offended that he might think that she is artificial or well-bred or whatever. If you get this annoyed, I feel... Usually when you get annoyed about criticism from other people, it's because you know that deep down it's true. Well, it's also not the just the criticism, but the relentless nature of it. Like, yeah. I'm kind of on Kathy's side with this because Phil is just constant lectures on how you're not virtuous and tolerant enough or not tolerant the right way. I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with someone who does, pulls that shit as much as he does either. Sure, he's not going about it the right way. Like he's not he's not communicating uh, communicating with her yeah, I don't, enough. I don't need about a, a sermon every time we get together. Thank you very much. <laughs> there, they definitely have a lot of communication problems. Yeah. Uh, she tells him she understands now why she wasn't excited about the idea when he when she first heard it. Uh, She understood that he was attempting the impossible. 
You are what you are for the one life you have, and she's glad she's a Christian. There, she said it. Just like she's glad she's healthy instead of sick, or glad that she's attractive instead of ugly. It isn't a judgment that she's superior, it's just a simple fact. But he could never see that. She hates him for doing this. They had so much and could have been so happy. She hates him for taking it away from both of them. And with that, she walks out the door. And this is the most maybe nuanced and interesting uh, statement this movie makes, to me at least, mm. the fact that, uh, yes, you can be glad you aren't something, but that doesn't mean you feel superior to that something. It's just a statement of fact. Like, yes, I'm glad I'm not ugly. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person or dislike ugly people. It means that I'm glad my life isn't harder than it is. Yeah. I mean, it comes back, you know, it echoes a little bit the discourse that, uh, Professor Lieberman was putting out there too is like society makes it harder on some people that you know society will make it harder on you if you come from a certain background if you're ugly if you're poor if you're if you come if you practice a certain religion and all that so if you have a certain if uh, you look different from other people if you have a certain color of, uh, of skin and all that stuff so it's society yes society will make it harder on some people and yeah i understand what she's saying here like yeah you can be glad that you're not yeah. certain things but that doesn't mean that you you are against against it or that you feel superior yeah it doesn't mean you feel superior and you're also not a bad person for yeah. not feeling guilty about your life not being harder. Yeah, she didn't choose to be a Christian. She didn't choose to to be white. She didn't choose to be a pretty a lady or anything. That's also uh, well, you can the... choose your religion, but the other you things, can, yeah, the other things are yeah, outside of your control. Yes. Fade to Phil lying awake in bed in the dark. Uh, Dave and Anne come in to wake him up and try to get him to join in the fun, but Dave realizes that something is wrong and has Anne step out so he can talk to Phil alone. Phil tells him about Tommy, and Dave says that now he's had the whole experience. He can mm. stop being a Jew. And he also tells him a story about a soldier he knew while he was in the military that was struck by a mortar shell. And the other soldiers around, the soldier that got struck by the shell was Jewish. And then the other soldiers around him made a comment about, uh, come on, let's go help the slur. And uh, that was the last thing the, the Jewish shoulder heard before he died. Yeah. And also, I thought Dave and Anne were a couple because they go out together and spend so much time together. But... I thought that this was the direction the, the movie was going to take. But Dave has a wife and child yeah. that we never see. Yeah. They're on the other side of the country. <laughs> but yeah, on my second watch, they're, they're just friends, I guess. At the magazine, Phil enters his office and gives the completed article to his secretary, who reads the title and is shocked to find that Phil is a Christian. <laughs> Phil then beats her over the head with a monologue about how he's the same man he was yesterday. Same hands, same voice. The only thing that's changed is what he's labeled. That feeling of disbelief she has that he give up that label even for a short time. That is anti-Semitism. <laughs> he even like, he grabs her hands so she's like, look, I have the same hands. Yeah, the same, same skin. The, the same, same skin. There's nothing different about, nothing's changed. Don't you see? Don't you see? And she, she's like, yeah, I see. Just let go of me, you creep. And also, that's, 
what everything that he's saying here that's just that's not just anti-semitism is just racism at large yeah it's it's getting caught up in labels and thinking the labels are real and actually mean things uh phil's next stop on his crusade is the boss's office where he tells him he's packing up and heading back to california now that the story is done and the, the boss apologizes about things not working between him and uh, Kathy and asks if there's anything he can do. And, and Phil says there isn't. Uh, then Phil is back in his office and everyone is stopping by to tell him how great the article is, including Anne. After everyone else leaves, she asks if things between him and Kathy are over and invites him to her place that uh, night for drinks. And... Uh, this is the point where she also discovers that he's not Jewish and uh, she makes an unintentionally uh, comedic comment about, uh, I wondered uh, how you would manage to like be so enthusiastic and uh, fired up about it for so long. About, oh, that he was enthusiastic about uh, Jewish? About anti-Semitism, like how he could have been so worked up about anti-Semitism mm. if he had been a Jew his entire life. And now it makes sense because he wasn't a Jew his entire yeah. life and it was new to him. So that's why you were uh, virtue signaling so hard, is what she says. <laughs> then we're at Anne's place, and the two sit on a couch, and Anne asks if she can say something about him and Kathy. Rather, you didn't, says Phil. Uh, Anne continues anyway, and Phil gets up with a growl and walks to the window. He says something along the lines of, ah, just be quiet. Fine, says Anne, I get it. Don't let the flag touch the ground. Be honorable. But I can't stand hypocrites. Uh, then she goes on about how the world is full of Cathy's, nice people who make disapproving sounds about bigotry but always want other people to fight the real fight. Those people who haven't got the guts to take the step from words to action. If Anne had a kid that she loved, she'd want him to, to be brought up with someone who agreed with her on the basic things. Phil asks if she's proposing, and she softly says, maybe I am. It's Dave's turn to lecture next as he meets Kathy alone in a restaurant. Kathy just wanted to let him know how un-anti-Semitic she is and uh, does this by telling him about a dinner party she was at where a man told an anti-Semitic joke and how it disgusted her when she heard it. But what did you do after he told it, says Dave. What, huh? says Kathy. Dave suggests that uh, she maybe says something next time. Kathy's mind is blown. It's not it's not enough just to feel it. You actually have to do something. Yes. Kathy is shocked. Shocked Pikachu face. <laughs> uh, then we're back at Phil's place where he's congratulated by his story by his mom. Uh, she wishes his father could have read it. Mm. He says he hopes it changes some minds because time is running out. And his mom says that she wants to live to be very old so she can see how the world develops. <laughs> uh, didn't get much better. Yes. Uh, 80 years later, nothing has changed. <laughs> Same problems. Uh, then Dave comes in to make a phone call without saying anything to Phil or his mother. And he tells the man on the other end of the line that he'll be staying in New York because Kathy gave him her cottage. Yes. Hooray. Transition to Phil running up the stairs uh, at Kathy's apartment and knocking on her door. She answers the door and the two embrace. The end. <laughs> what happened to Anne? She fucking proposed. Well, he wasn't in love with her, so. Yeah, but we don't get him turning her down or anything. She just, it sounds like you're proposing. Yes, I am. 
fade to black. We never see her again. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with that. I, th- I think it uh, saves us from a, an uncomfortable scene where he has to reject her. I it's I just it feels sloppy like a lot of other stuff in this movie. Yeah. So what would you think about Gentleman's Agreement? I think the intentions were there. It just it had some good intentions. I just think it it was very clunky and didn't make points in in a way that was clear enough, I think. Like the I had issues like I was saying earlier with the speech that Professor Lieberman gives it just it's trying to make some good points. It's trying to uh, to have heart in it in a good place, but it just I don't know. I, I don't know. It just to me it just really all boils down to just be a decent person. If you don't have an actual reason for not liking someone or something, they just you know shut it and be a decent person. Yeah, I think this movie is miserable and joyless and virtue signaling and tripping over its own feet. And you're right, it it has its heart in the right place, mm. but it's just the most masturbatory, uh, let's use this as an excuse to, to monologue and finger wag and expouse how virtuous and noble we are and how all the people that don't think like us aren't as virtuous and noble and how dare they and they should be ashamed and it's just so heavy-handed and awkward and miserable it's just it's just a sermon it's just getting preached at for almost two hours and it's just gross yeah it's trying to finger wag and and pretending that racism can be erased yeah it's it's naive it's naive and it's heavy-handed and it's dumb it's just dumb you can't nag the world into being a utopia this is this is a child's view of the world you that doesn't work yeah it you can't you can't monologue at a bigot long enough and then suddenly they're not a bigot and they change their ways and also the, the this fire being fired up about oh we need to we need to take some non-specific action and we need to take it fast or it'll be too late this you know this sky is falling sky is falling like i don't disagree with like obviously anti-semitism is bad like obviously you need to be nice to people but this this whole but the idea that you can erase it completely... Yeah, it'll never go away. It's yeah. never going to go away. And this, this idea that, uh, oh, if we just say the right things and fight the right fight and uh, uh, everybody gets worked up and uh, makes everyone uncomfortable and uh, talks about nothing else, then it'll go away. Yeah, that's No, why, it won't. <laughs> that's why when we were doing the episodes on uh, Gone with the Wind, also, like I said... I wish, you know, the world would become, if not not racist, at least less racist, because I I don't think that we'll ever erase racism. There will always be people who are convinced that, you know, that people are bad or evil just because they practice a certain religion or come from a certain background or have a different color of skin than them. And it, that's always going to 
exists because as human beings, we compare ourselves to others and, and make up reasons to hate them. I just, I don't think we'll ever find a way to really erase racism. Any kind of bigotry for any reason is bad and deplorable and should be uh, called out and fought against, obviously. Also, it is a like built-in feature of humanity. If they're not, if we are not stratifying each other because of our religions or skin color, we will find some other way to categorize and uh, create a hierarchy. Yeah. It's it's always going to happen. If it's not for one thing, it's going to be over another thing. It, it is just a built-in uh, bug of of human nature. Yeah. And. Uh, getting up in people's faces and making everyone uncomfortable and wagging your finger and preaching and monologuing isn't going to change that. It's really just going to add more discomfort and misery. This movie is the worst kind of virtue signaling preachy nonsense. I did not like it. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't even have any characters everyone's just a vehicle to to preach more everything is vague like you can you can tell it's just they're all just vehicles to espouse opinions and monologues they aren't actual characters so why should i care or be invested about anything they do boo (laughs) boo this movie yeah i I think there were plenty of ways maybe to go about the this topic and and make a movie about it but it was trying to do too much it was trying to to address to too many things too many stereotypes too many phil, I don't know. phil is just the most insufferable kind of person who where they get on a moral crusade and then everyone needs to care about it uh you know as much as they do mm-hmm. and if you don't you're a bad person and let me uh uh, tell you just exactly why you're a bad person and how exactly you should think about this and yeah just the premise of it the you know pretending to be yeah and to be someone you're not and, and it, how it was so sticky how smug and self-righteous this movie is while being completely unself-aware of its own hypocrisy and uh, problems yeah. ugh low point of the 40s definitely so where does it go on your list i haven't put it on my list yet honestly i'm having a it's another one of those movies where it's not technically a bad movie but i think it's a real bad movie (laughs) it's also not not great there's nothing really technical about it the writing is there are some good conversations. There are some. There's some good writing here and there, but it's mostly very clunky. They accidentally, yeah, brush up against some interesting areas of this topic, but they never. Everything is very vague and not gone into in much depth. And it's also like we were talking about talking together off mic after watching the movie. It's another of those movies that's. It deals with anti-Semitism without mentioning the Holocaust oh, yeah. or mentioning Not that a, there was a, 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 a genocide that happened uh, against Jewish people. Yeah, it just like where do you get off movie talking about how people don't fight against anti-Semitism enough and then not even say the word Holocaust? Yeah. 
just like in, in uh, the life of Emil Zola, they couldn't even say or they couldn't even say the word Jew. They just showed it on paper. Yeah. Either you go all in or you don't. Yeah. All the nice people movie <laughs> who don't want to actually f- fight the fight. String it up with his own words. It doesn't even feel like a movie. It it feels like a string of like uh, after school specials. It has that heavy, <laughs> heavy handedness and out of touch feeling where it's it's trying to be relevant and uh, insightful. And it's just being clunky and awkward and dumb. It felt like patchwork a little bit. Yeah. It's just putting all of these scenes together to try and make a point. But it's stereotypical in its own way repetitive and almost comical because every single person phil meets is an (laughs) anti-semite after he reveals that he's a jew yeah and in this scene phil encounters an anti-semite and this scene phil encounters an anti-semite but in this scene he encounters an (laughs) (laughs) anti-semite then it turns out he's dating an anti-semite oh no yep it's yeah it's it's one of the the quickest episodes we've done like just shot through that synopsis because there's nothing to it yeah there's no no meat there's no substance really to to this movie there's nothing to really that's the thing like to me there's nothing really to react to because all i kept thinking is just I've said it, uh, said it already uh, twice during this episode. Like, it, it, and I feel just repetitive. It just, just be a good, decent fucking person. That's all it is. Like, yeah, it's one of the things that rubs me the wrong way the most about virtue signaling is that the people that do it espouse these really basic, obvious things as if they're profound. Like, oh, should we be good people and not judge others off arbitrary labels? Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. And this isn't going to change any anti-Semite's mind. It's just preaching to the choir. It's just masturbatory. If if only we could just be good people to the people around us. Oh, is it good to be a good person? Wow, what a revelation movie. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Could have never figured it out on my own. Yeah. Alright, where is it going on my list? Uh, I think I'll probably put it under Going My Way. So uh, it's going to be my new number 18 between Going My Way and Cimarron. Sounds about right. I don't, yeah, I don't think it deserves to be any higher than that. Yep. So Toward, 18 out of 20. Yep, towards the bottom of the list. Barely even a movie. Also, the title... Should we just uh, discuss it too? Like uh, there's a title drop at some point when Kathy is trying to justify the fact that they're talking about her community in Connecticut and she's like, oh, it's more of a gentleman's agreement to like not talk about it. Yeah, just because you have a gentleman's agreement. I mean, I guess it's supposed to be in keeping with the theme of uh, conspiracy of silence and, you know, people not speaking up when they should, but... And on mine, is it worse than Broadway Melody? It's worse than Broadway Melody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Broadway Melody was just uh, boring. This movie is boring and naive and preachy. So uh, it's not as openly racist as Cimarron, though. So 
it, it Cimarron and Gone with the Wind are worse, but yeah, man, this was a low point. I hope this is the worst movie of the 40s we watch. We've only got two more. Oh, yeah, we only have two more, but... Ugh. Ugh. I don't think there there's much more to say about it other than ugh. Yeah, you could even hear, you know, we're not really enthusiastic about doing this episode because it's just, there's nothing... There's nothing to say about it. Yeah. It's just, we just got a lecture for two hours over yeah. something that was obvious. We got a lecture about how the sky is blue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, should we not be anti-Semitic? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. The <laughs> next movie, I I don't think it's going to... Oh, be it, much better. It's but Hamlet. Yes. Oh man. Yeah, movie <laughs> version of the play. Apparently, they've cut a bunch of stuff from the play, but still, Hamlet. Uh, to be or not to be. Oh. That is the question. Uh, a quote from Hamlet applies to this uh, movie pretty well, which is, "There is more in heaven and earth, my dear Horatio, than is dreamt of in your simple philosophy." Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, probably the Shakespeare sh- story I'm most familiar with. Saw it performed in the, in the park in San Francisco once. Oh, that's nice. A very abridged uh, version of it. I hope it's not uh, Shakespearean in length as well as content. Uh, it'll have interesting costumes at least. I hope you so. You think he'll actually pick up a skull when he says the poor York thing? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but it's going to be with a returning actor, Laurence Olivier, who was Max in Rebecca. Huh. I hope hope he uh, emotes better this time. Is he the titular Hamlet? I believe so. Oh, boy. Yeah, I hope hope that awkwardness was uh, in the character and not the actor. (laughs) We'll find out. I think he's probably going to be better in that because he was more used to being a theater actor anyway, so. Yep. Here's hoping. All right. Put this one behind us. Yes. Let's move on to better movies. Let's do it. God, this was dreadful. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. (laughs) (sighs) See you next time. Yep. Till next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.